A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. Are you ready to revel in wrong think? You know, the surprising thing is it's easier than it sounds. All you have to do is, uh, well, basically not toe the line of of whatever uh, the conventional wisdom may hold or what the prevailing narrative may be telling you to believe. But believe it or not, it's, it's really worthwhile. And you learn a lot. You see the world through new eyes. I have a special guest joining me today. I want to welcome Tamina. Did I come close? De- yes. <laughs> Zorgi. She is uh, she's affiliated with uh, with Young Voices, but that, that's only a, a partial description of what she does. Uh, Taminette, we get to talk on a fairly regular basis because of a, of a program that you and I are mutually involved in moving forward with Young Voices. But I want to shine the spotlight a little bit on you today, in part because of your background. You actually were born in Iran and you uh, have come to the United States, but uh, Before we talk about, uh, you know, international relations, geopolitical considerations, let's talk a little bit about what you have done with yourself Um, since you came to America. um, You are uh, you're a, a regular columnist for the OC Register. You're the public relations associate for Young Voices. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you do and what you've been doing um, with, with your life here in America. Thank you so much, Ryan, for the introduction. Uh, so yeah, as you mentioned, I moved to the United States in 2016 when I was 18 years old with my family. And we came to this country so we could have a better life. I could have the freedom that I wanted. I could pursue the education that I could not pursue in my home country, unfortunately. And it was kind of like a bittersweet experience of moving here. You know, I was very excited to be in a new country in a whole different world. At the same time, it was really difficult because, of course, I was away from all my loved ones, everything I had, you know, everything I knew. I was speaking a whole different language every day. And it's just, you know, overwhelming for an 18 years old. And uh, I started studying at uh, L.A. Pierce College uh, at a community college that was really close to my house. And I had a wonderful experience just, uh, you know, studying at Pierce, and I met a lot of uh, amazing professors. Uh, I already knew what I wanted to do. I always knew I was really passionate about community work. I wanted to work with people. So I, I started studying political science as that was my major. And I transferred to UCLA and go Bruins. Uh, we're <laughs> doing really well right now. Um, and again, UCLA was such a wonderful place for me to really, really pursue what I was really passionate for. I met a lot of amazing professors in my field of study. And, you know, I chose international relations and American politics as my academic focus. And uh, at the same time, I was really active in student organizations. I was active with a bunch of uh, liberty groups, such as Students for Liberty, Young Americans for Liberty. And uh, I was able to bring together a huge network of uh, conservative, libertarian students across the state of California. I know a lot of people are like, oh, California is just a lost cause and <laughs> everyone's just a bunch of crazy hippies there. No, that's not true. Uh, we have amazing uh, young people here who are really passionate about ideas of freedom. So that was a highlight of my uh 
college years that I was a California State Chair for Young Americans for Liberty, uh, I had the amazing opportunity of interning for my favorite congressman, Thomas Massey in Washington, D.C. And I learned so much from him and he's just absolutely wonderful. He's such a great mentor to me. And after when I came back from my internship back to California, I was like, you know what? I'm, I really think you know, I, these ideas really matter and I want to get it out there. I don't want to just get, you know, being California, just work on the grass, grassroots movement. Like I, I want to people across the country and across the world to read and hear what I have to say. So that's when I started writing for different news outlets. I started with campus reform. I got published in Washington Examiner and then I, and uh, joined young voices as a contributor in summer. And that's how, you know, we got started. I remember my first <laughs> radio show was really, really, um, anxious and now here i am and this is literally my job i you're an old pro now yeah you (laughs) this is no big thing now i want to talk about iran i want to talk about uh you know the uh i want to help dispel some myths because i think a lot of americans are are, uh, laboring under some myths about it we've been told for years and years why they're just 30 days they're just three months away from having a nuclear weapon and they're going to wipe israel off the map and anyway the the war hawks always seem to look to iran as you know, this is the bad boy, and this is why we need to have uh, a stronger military presence in the Middle East and so forth. Before we go there, though, I, I have a question of clarification. On your Twitter profile, you describe yourself as a metalhead. Tell me about <laughs> yes. your rock and roll side, because, uh, I mean, you're a very cultured person. You are a polyglot. You, you're, you're fluent in, in many different languages. And, and I have to admit, that kind of made me go, really? A metalhead? <laughs> Do you like heavy, heavy metal music? Oh, absolutely. I love heavy metal music. And fun fact, I actually play classical music my entire life. I played violin uh, since I was a kid, and I also play uh, the piano, and I sing, like, I'm an alto one. (laughs) I sing in the choir. So uh, my background is classical music, and a lot of folks are, oh, wow, but what about metal? Well, fun fact, metal is such a rich music. A lot of folks who are into classical music also fall in love with metal because there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of elements uh, between two genres. And uh, I personally love symphonic metal. That's my favorite genre. And it's because there's a mixture of classical music and, and, you know, electric guitar. And I think the lyrics, the depth of the music, the complexity of the sound is just absolutely satisfying. And it really helps me focus. I've been listening to this genre since I was a kid. I was like 10 years old. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I I guess that's, uh, you know, just something that, a lot of classical music folks are into. You just um, you just popular. legitimized a, a genre of music that a lot of people are like, oh, that's all the devil worship, rock and roll kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not. A, I, I would not classify myself as a, as a metalhead. I do love some heavy metal music. I, I like all kinds of music, but I just have to say that was a surprising aspect to learn about you. That uh, oh, well, you're you're very multifaceted then in that regard. Tell me about Iran. I, I I see pictures. I've read National Geographic articles. Therefore, I must be some kind of an expert. But you were you were born there and then immigrated to the United States. So tell me about your experience living there until until you were was it 18 years old? Yeah. So um, there's a lot here that I should unpack. I can like give you ten, tens of thousands of hours speech on this. But I just want to kind of like uh, give you a quick bits and then we can move on and talk about like details uh well yeah i was born and raised in tehran and both my parents uh 
you know, are very educated people. Um, my mom has a bachelor's degree in English. My dad has a doctorate in business and also a master's degree in engineering. So, I mean, we're just very like normal middle class folks. And despite maybe the popular belief, well, there's no war in Iran. Like people are living peaceful lives and daily life is pretty great. Um, and yes, of course, we have really beautiful cities in the country. Fun fact, Iran is one of the most four seasons nations. It means like literally at any time of the year, you can travel somewhere and see snow and you can travel somewhere else and you can just lay on the sand and enjoy the sun. Like in the middle of February, you can do that if you go to the south. So uh Iran is very diverse and not just when it comes to climate, it's a very diverse country in terms of ethnicity, languages, and also religion, even though the government is called like the Islamic Republic, literally. Uh, and of course, the official religion of the nation is Shia Islam. However, there are a lot of groups that live there that practice other religions, such as Armenians who are Christian, such as Assyrians who are also Christians. We have, uh, we used to have the largest Jewish population uh, amongst all the Middle Eastern countries uh, before Israel. And then uh, a lot of Iranian Jews moved to Israel. So Yes, Iran is a very diverse country. Not everyone speaks Farsi as their first language. A lot of individuals uh, speak Turkish as their first language or Kurdish or Lurish. There's so many different accents. It's just such a diverse country. And of course, with diversity comes a lot of food. Okay, we could talk about food because I'm, I'm kind of a foodie. I, I like food too. But I, did, I feel terrible sometimes that there are so many misconceptions that, that people, uh, particularly those who are a little more... Um, enemy driven or fear driven they're always looking you know who's the scapegoat and it strikes me that iran has has fulfilled that purpose at least in in america's foreign policy objectives or uh geopolitical objectives for some time uh, we're, we're coming up on our break here in a few moments but when we come back i'd like to talk a little bit about the the reality of um do the do the iranians really just wish death on america i mean I, 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 we have our own problems here at home in case you hadn't noticed like last year, <laughs> the whole last half of the last year. But I feel sometimes like there, there's a mischaracterization of, of the Iranian people. And so I'm, I'm going to lean on you to, to kind of dispel some of those myths. Can we do that? Yes, absolutely. We'd love to talk about it. Okay. My guest is Tamina De Bozorgi. And, and I'm sorry, I'm still struggling with your name, but I'll, I'll have this down. I promise. <laughs> No, you got it. It's pretty good. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Tatmina Debozorgi. She is the public relations affiliate with, or associate rather, with Young Voices. She's also an opinion columnist. She's an amazing person, and uh, and she's she's helping me uh, learn a few things. I, and and Tatmina, I am I'm embarrassed to say there's a lot of stuff that I thought I knew about Iran that. Uh, is is very much in question. What what kind of misconceptions do you find the people you encounter um, are laboring under regarding your your native country? 
Yeah, so one of the biggest misconceptions is that they start lumping Iran with other uh, countries in general, like with other Arab countries or with um, just any nation in the Middle East. They start seeing us as like one holistic uh you know, overall, I guess, culture. But that's not true. Um, Iran is a Farsi-speaking nation. The, the culture of the people is very different than a lot of other countries nearby. And even countries in the Middle East are totally different than from each other. Even some of the Arabic nations, like, have so many different um, accents. They don't even understand each other. Middle East is such a diverse place. It's not just, you know, this region that everyone has the same religion and speaks the same language. That's just, that's just such, such a huge, huge misconception. Another misconception is people think Iran is a desert, which always makes me laugh. Well, that's not true. Iran has beautiful deserts, of course, because it's such a um, big country. However, Iran is a, a, a very, you know, green and very uh, luscious and has a lot of mountains. It's one of the most elevated countries in the world, like in terms of uh, we have some of the highest mountains. Uh, I used to look at outside the window and I would see it's like snow covered mountains, just like, you know, Salt Lake City. And uh, it's like very similar scenery. So, yeah, that's another misconception that people think that, oh, the Middle East is just a big giant desert. No, that's not true. Like, have you seen Iraq? It's the cradle of uh, the civilization. I mean, Mesopotamia uh, is, is green. It's so green. And uh, same thing with other countries in the Middle East. I mean, Afghanistan is like Switzerland in terms of when it comes to scenery. It's beautiful. It has high mountains. It has snow everywhere. Again, all these countries in the Middle East are just the most gorgeous. And I guess that's what makes the issue. Like that everyone just wants it. Everyone wants to take control of this beautiful part of the world. And, and, and the natural resources, because <laughs> there, yeah, there are some very serious oil, uh, oil deposits there as well. Yeah, and that's a very good point, Brian, because, uh, you know, I wrote a paper about this, the oil curse. I, I was actually a student of uh, Dr. Michael Ross, who's one of the uh, theorists, and he has this beautiful book about the same topic. And one thing I learned is even though oil was the driving force of conflict or at least, you know, attracted all these other Western countries to the Middle East, it's losing its strategic purpose, in my opinion. I mean, the world is not necessarily dependent on the Middle East oil anymore because, I mean, in the U.S., we have fracking, we have uh, we have our own oil production, and there are so many other nations in Europe and a bunch of other places that discovered oil, and we have discovered so many new uh, ways to drill oil that is cheaper, that, that, you know, we are no longer in dire desire to go to the Middle East and just get those cheap oils. Not anymore, Ryan. And I guess I, that should be a good call for a lot of policymakers that, I mean, oil is not the strategic resource anymore. There are so many other things we should be concerned about. Let's talk about there was a time when the U.S. and Iran were actually on very good terms with each other. Uh, and, and then it yeah. changed in, in 1979. Walk us through um, the, the process of, of that change. Yes, of course. And again, this is uh, the history that my grandparents and even my parents have lived through. So it's not really far. Uh, before 1979, when, you know, my grandparents were younger and my parent, my dad was maybe 10 years old or something when the revolution happened. So he remembers it. Um, Iran used to be under the rule of Shah. You know, we had a monarchist system. We had it since uh, 2,500 years ago. Like it's our ancient system that has kept continuing. And um, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, who was our, you know, Shah, he 
was known to be very progressive in terms of trying to move the country forward. He started a lot of economic plans. He started doubling down on oil production. He made a lot of deals with a lot of countries. He invited all these nations to Iran, like celebrated with them, showed how beautiful this nation is, kind of put Iran on the map. So Iran moved from being this country that was always in conflict and war after World War One and World War Two to a hegemon in the Middle East. Iran in no time built its military had a beautiful air force. It had uh, universities that uh, American students came and studied in. Uh, Iran had these deals with the U.S. that we sent our uh, military generals to the U.S. to get trained by the American military so they could bring their methods here. So we're really close with the U.S. Um, Shaw and the American president, whoever was at the time, they would always meet. They would always invite each other to the White House and in the palace. So there's that close relation. And also Iran and Israel were very much on good terms with each other. They were allies in the region. I mean, a lot of Iranian Jews went to Israel and they actually helped to build Israel. And um, but however, there was a turning point in history and a lot of people say, what happened? Like this, you know, giant country, like this whole empire suddenly fell apart in a heartbeat. And yes, it was really a heartbeat. The country just turned like 180 degrees in a year. And Khomeini came came to power. He was this hardliner uh, mullah. He was an ayatollah. He was a religious leader. And right after the revolution, we got into this eight-year bloody war with our neighboring country, Iraq, who no one thought had the audacity to even like just touch Iran. But he suddenly started bombing, you know, Tehran and all the giant cities. Like, the question is, how and why? And that's what I want to answer. Well, before 1979, when Iran and U.S. had those close relationships, again, as I mentioned, Iran was the hegemon in the Middle East. And of course, Iraq could never uh, match Iran's military power and influence to even dare to attack. And of course, any country that goes through revolution, there is this you know, shift in bureaucracy. Everything is falling apart. There is no economy, pretty much. There's no state. So when uh, Iran was going through that turmoil, Iraq saw an opportunity and attacked Iran and started killing civilians. Over like million Iranians died in the war and a lot of people uh, were injured. Like my mom's cousin was injured in the war. And that was so traumatic, such a traumatic experience for Iranian people. And I guess that really changed people's hearts, even not just people, but even the government's mentality uh, when it comes to dealing with foreign foreign nations. It's it's interesting to hear you describe how it just flipped almost overnight. And, and, and I hope I'm not being hyperbolic to say this, but I'm seeing kind of a, a weird shift like that happening here in America. Some of the things that I see taking place feel like 180 degree flip that are happening super, super fast. Well, just let me clarify this. That 180 degree wasn't like the people actually taking action. There was a lot of actors being, especially the left-leaning groups, started uh, sabotaging pretty much the Shah's government and got power, got support from Soviet nation and all the communist countries and pretty much deposed the Shah. So there was a lot of power behind the revolution. So it wasn't like people really doing it. It was other people uh, from outside sources, like the left Marxists. And they established this Marxist um, 
governments, the Islamic Republic, which a lot of people don't really count as a lefty government. It is a theocratic and left-leaning socialist con- uh, government right now in place. So, um, and of course, when the war happens, the government gets more power. And that's what yep. the Iranian government did. They got more power and they started oppressing people. And their excuse was, we're in war with another country. So sit down, listen to what I say. We have to fight within foreign nations, which I totally understand. I mean, people are in like you know, in crisis. So I guess that was what prolonged like this government, this regime's lifetime. And here we are now. We're coming up on our break. Can you hang with me for one more segment? Absolutely. I really need closure. <laughs> no, I just, I, I, <laughs> I want, I want to learn more about this, but um, I, I especially want, want people to understand something you've mentioned here before. We can visit this in more detail. The people of Iran Yes, are are very absolutely. they're down to earth. They would have so much in common with with most every one of us. Government, well, we have some government problems too. Maybe maybe we can re, maybe we can relate to what they're they're going through. We'll take a quick break. My guest is Tamina Debozorgi, and we will be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again for joining us today. My special guest is Tamina Debozorgi. Debozorgi. Sorry. I, I'm just... <laughs> I'm determined. I'm going to get this right. I'm going to be so so fluent and so smooth at this that uh, you're going to say, wow, you say that like a native. <laughs> um, being from Iran, there are some things that I know you wanted to communicate to our audience about to being um, an Iranian-American, as well as, as how the Iranian people um, see themselves, how they see America, how they see the world. Um, just jump in wh- wherever you think is a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, Iranians in general are one of the most like underrated groups of people, I would say. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying this because I'm an Iranian American, but I'm just saying like, this is my perception of my own community. Uh, Iranians in general, not just in the US, but even in Iran, they're very educated folks, like more than 80% of our population holds a university degree and they go across the world. Like, unfortunately, due to socioeconomic issues and a lot of problems that we have in our home nation, you know, we have this thing called like Iranian diaspora, which I hate to say it, but a lot of us have left our nation over uh, a million Iranians live in the U S and they've been moving here since, you know, since before the revolution. And, you know, like more folks, including myself have come over over time. Like we have third generation, generation Iranian Americans that's kind of surprising for a lot of people wow like third generation Iranian Americans uh yes we do have that and uh and it's just uh, Iranian Americans are one of the most uh productive educated immigrant groups in the nation uh more than uh 80 percent of us hold like master's or above degree uh i mean i still have a bachelor's degree so i'm not i'm bringing the statistics down uh but that's something that a lot of people don't know about us and i'm not just bragging about it i'm just saying that you know unfortunately due to the problems that existed in our home nation we could not uh pursue our dreams and our future like i personally could not be a lawyer as a woman i wanted to study law i wanted to be 
a member in my society. I couldn't because of my gender. It wasn't because my society had an issue or my people were not educated and ignorant. No, it was the government trying to oppress us. And of course, we had to leave because we want to do what we want to do. And we go out outside in other countries and we were very successful. And um, it's that's maybe a misconception a lot of folks have about just Iranians or Middle Easterns that, you know, we are fundamentalists or we don't have anything. We're poor. We don't have any education. No, that's not true. We, we're doctors. We're lawyers. We're engineers across the world. Like in the U.S., most of the doctors in Beverly Hills are Iranian Americans, uh, you know, doing all these like celebrity surgeries. And that's uh, sad because we could have done that in our nation. But, you know, here we are. Um and I mean, we all love America. And that's, uh, I personally think coming to America was the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, I love this nation. It's the best place anyone could be as an immigrant. And I'm saying this because everyone in the U.S. is so nice and receptive. They're so just excited to learn about our culture and language. And I just love meeting people coming from across the world. Like I have friends from, uh, you know, Mexico, from Ireland, from uh, Scandinavian nations. I could never see that anywhere in the world. It's just in L.A. It's just America that I can see that level of diversity. And I think that's another misconception a lot of American voters have that immigration is hard full. No, it's not. Like we bring our expertise, we bring our capital, we bring our money. It's literally free. We're bringing into you to start business and we create jobs. And uh, we love this nation. We came to America to build America, to build a country that we did not have in other parts of the world, like where we come here because we care um, about uh, building a better life. We're not here to take anyone else's uh, happiness. You know, um, I don't consider myself a really advanced student of history, but um, as I have studied history, it's very clear to me that um, there have been some truly uh, magnificent cultures. And the Persian culture is is one that uh, definitely has left its mark in world history. And I know it's really uncool right now, or at least in some circles, it's very uncool to, to have any kind of pride in your heritage. I mean, that's like, whoa, no, everybody's the, no. But I mean, there, there are things that, that are really worth celebrating. And, and that doesn't mean to the exclusion or, you know, to, I'm superior to everybody else. Um, but the Persian culture has contributed a great deal to the world throughout human history. Yes. And I think the beauty of this, at least like when it comes to Persian culture, I'm just going to speak into it because, you know, I, I know about that more than uh, probably like anything else is because it's very uh, generic. Like the Persian Empire was founded on diversity. You know, when Cyrus the Great, you know, took over any nation, like he would free the slaves. He would welcome everyone into the nation. He would never like enforce the language or anything on other people. And that was a trend that con has continued like in a long time. That's why we have such a diversity of cultures that uh, share history with the Iranian, um, you know, like, let me just clarify this. The, the term Iranian is very uh, inclusive. Like, it doesn't mean, like, necessarily Persian. Persians are part of the Iranian group. Uh, so when we're speaking about the Iranian culture, that means, like, a lot of countries, even China, like is included in even India shares a lot of things. So I believe uh, when we're speaking about culture in general, uh, we're speaking about inclusion, not exclusion. And uh, recently we had the Noru celebration. So it was the Persian New Year. Uh, so Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs> uh, tomorrow is the day of nature. Uh, we call it Sizeva. There's when people go to the nature and celebrate the, the beauty of it. And again, I think it's something really beautiful that, um, you know, you probably have seen a Rumi uh, in bookstores in English. And Rumi was a 
Persian poet, and he contributed a lot to the global literature. His words uh, of wisdom uh, are stuff that are translated in so many languages and everyone can enjoy and read and understand. And I personally love sharing these things with my friends uh, and everyone appreciates them because, again, it's something beautiful that, you know, uh, every culture has something to contribute to the society. And I don't think there is, I don't think people should be ashamed of sharing it. And they also other people should not shame each other for sharing their culture and accusing them of being prideful. You know, uh, I think there is a lesson to be learned from everyone and everyone brings something to the table. And the beauty of being in America is that we have such a diverse uh, melting pot at every nation and every country that brings something to this country. I love what you're sharing here. And I don't want to, I'm trying not to be the wet blanket, but I have to ask this because I have a very deep concern. Um, My, from my perspective, I see the governments of uh, Iran and the United States on a collision course. And um, I want to I want to get your take on that. Is is conflict between these two nations inevitable? Obviously, the people don't, you know, people. I'm not sitting around here thinking, oh, the Iranian, the Iranians. I just I can't stand what they're doing. And I don't think that the average Iranians doing that either. But it seems like our governments are antagonistic toward one another. What what do you see? as as we move down the road i mean i don't think iran and u.s would ever get into a direct conflict and there's a clear reason for that u.s is way too powerful and iran would definitely i mean the iranian government would just be devastated if they entered in any sort of conflict with the u.s direct like if they started it and on the other hand the u.s it would if u.s wanted to start a war with iran which i don't think they they have any reason to re- at this point it would just be costly i mean we're already in so many endless wars and we have this other threat coming from china and it would just be an extra level of stress on top of everything on the taxpayer i just don't think there is any strategic purpose to the war on the other hand yes the iranian government is extremely oppressive to the people it's literally killing people in the streets the iranian government shoots its own citizens and i mean i i can talk on and on and what i've been through as a woman growing up under this oppressive government under the islamic regime there's absolutely no legitimacy to that uh but when we're talking about like the grand scheme of things uh from the u.s perspective U.S. just does not see a strategic purpose in getting into a direct conflict with Iran. However, uh, U.S. has always been uh, very vigilant about containing Iran uh, in the region, of, and there's a big reason for it. First of all, it's to protect Israel, which is the geopolitical ally of uh, of the U.S. And a lot of folks on in the media want to portray Iran-Israel or Iran-U.S. conflict as a matter of identity, or if this is something because they are Muslims or that country, we're Christians or they are like Jewish. No, it's not about identity. It's, it's just geopolitics. If you talk, uh, speaking to it from a realist point of view, of course, there's this country that wants to be a hegemon in the region one more time, wants to recover from the war, a humiliating war with, the Iraq, with Iraq. Iran wants to establish itself as a big boy so it can deter other nations from attacking it again. And of course, that has a lot of consequences for everyone on the side, including the Iranian people, which who are suffering from the government's predatory actions. Tatmina, I have been I've really enjoyed talking with you. And I'm sorry, we're coming up against uh, against the break here. So (laughs) I'm going to have to cut you loose. But tell people where they can access your work and and we'll keep an eye on you. Where where can they find your writings? 
Absolutely. You can find my writing on young-voices.com. And uh, under the talent page, you can look up my name, T-A-H-M-I-N-E-H. That's my first name. Just look me up and you'll find me there. And all my pieces are listed. All right. I appreciate you taking the time to visit with me. Uh, We'll be talking again on Moving Forward with Young Voices. And have a great day. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. Have a great day, too. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors. They include our good friends at Monticello College, also pure-light.com, amazing LED light bulbs that serve the purpose of doing air purification. They kill pathogens. They, They destroy odors. And you can actually find the links to it right there on my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Also, hslammo.com. That's our good friend Spencer Worthington. And, uh, and what, a, what a terrific ambassador he is to uh, not only the Second Amendment, but the shooting sports and the whole shooting sports community. You can find these at thebrianheidshow.com. Today's show notes, this is for uh, April 1st. I'm not fooling. But if you check out those show notes, I'm sure you're going to find lots of good reading. A couple articles I want to touch on briefly in this final segment. Um, I remember a time when political correctness was a big deal, right? People forcing you to think a certain way and behave a certain way and only hold these approved beliefs. And, you know, it was obnoxious, but it was kind of limited to college campuses for the most part. You didn't have to worry about it everywhere you went. But now... I rem- I'm looking back on those days when political correctness was really starting to emerge, you know, in, as its own kind of movement. And I'm not looking back with fondness, but I'm thinking, huh, those weren't such bad days as, as, as we thought compared to the, the growing rage-driven social justice mindset, which is just out there to, to cancel and intimidate and punish anybody who doesn't toe their ideological line. It's really disturbing. Especially because I'm a wrong thinker and that means, you know, that uh, that puts kind of a special target on me and anybody else who thinks along those same lines. Well, I'm sure you've heard some some talk here and there about uh, there's there's a new uh, infrastructure bill that's uh, that they're looking to pass in Washington, D.C. Very curious, too. I mean, two trillion dollars. There was a time when that was an unthinkable amount of money. Now it's kind of like, well, you know, but it's smaller still than the uh, last relief bill or it's not quite as big as this and that. Um, Here's the kicker, though. Do you realize for for all of its uh, touted infrastructure projects and all the things it's going to do to improve infrastructure in America, tens of billions of dollars, possibly hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer money are being applied to that uh, social justice Movement. Now, some of it's in the form of uh, environmental activism or environmental justice, I believe, is the term that they're using. Other things have to do with, you know, diversity crusades and so forth. And the taxpayers get to foot this. This is part of what I was talking about in the last segment with uh, with my guest, Tamina, uh, when when I said, you know, I feel I feel our culture shifting right under my feet. I'm going to include in today's show notes an article from Robert E. Wright, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. And it's called Cancel Culture is Just the Beginning. 
And there, there are a couple different things that, that he points out here. Um, one of the things he, he does, he defines the term phalanx, which a lot of people may have heard, but they're not sure what exactly does that mean. He's using this in, in the, the context of, you know, if, if you imagine the jackboots kicking in your door at midnight and hauling you off to a re-education camp because of a tweet that you made, which one? Well, does it matter? He says, you think about resisting, but then you realize your assailants aren't really government employees. Rather, they're the hired henchmen of mega X corporations. So you relent. The right of Mega X to forcibly re-educate you was probably in your user agreement, so it's all good, right? No, he says wrong, especially if you understand what the members of the founding generation had in mind when they used the term phalanx. Now, the reference was as familiar to them as flash mob is to us, though a phalanx, a tight formation of ancient Greek infantry with overlapping shields, was much more disciplined than any flash mob. While individual infantrymen were relatively easily dispatched, when arranged in a phalanx, they became formidable, even to, caval- to cavalry, and phalanxes won many battles, including at Marathon. Now, the American founders used the term phalanx metaphorically to signify any powerful combination of forces allied to achieve some usually nefarious goal. Powerful individuals, especially ones concentrated in moneyed corporations, could defeat a divided government, but of course a tyrannical government could form a phalanx against the people. And he reminds us in the Constitutional Convention, for example, some delegates feared the three largest states, states rather, then Massachusetts, Pennsylvania and Virginia would carry everything before them. So if power were partitioned solely by population, as in one early draft of the popu- of the uh, Constitution, rather, Virginia, with her 16 votes, will be a solid column indeed, a formidable phalanx. Now, early in 1791, House Representative Josiah Parker of Virginia predicted that an excise tax on whiskey would let loose a swarm of harpies who, under the denomination of revenue officers, will range through the country, prying into every man's house and affairs, and, like a Macedonian phalanx, bear down on all of them. That's kind of a timely warning, right? In late 1803, President Thomas Jefferson feared the Bank of the United States, a by then completely privately owned joint stock corporation with branches spread across the country, posed an existential threat to our federal government. Suppose a series of untoward events should occur sufficient to bring into doubt the competency of a Republican government to meet a crisis of great danger or to unhinge the confidence of the people in the public functionaries, he wrote to Treasury Secretary Albert Gallatin. An institution like this, penetrating by its branches every part of the Union, acting by command and in phalanx, may in a critical moment upset the government. Now, the point here is there are powerful forces that are combining to create a phalanx of of sorts against the American people. And he goes into some great uh, historical perspective on this. One of the things I like he points out is uh, for too long, Americans have divided into tribes left and right. And frankly, I see a lot of people who are very firmly on the freedom side who still are are absolutely ensconced in that mindset. The former fulminates against big business, the latter against big government. And busy jostling against each other on the left and the right, they missed the big problem, which is the combination of big government and big business that's proven formidable to liberty. The right of every human being to do what they want within the confines of constitutional and just laws lawfully promulgated. I'm going to skip to the chase here. 
He says perhaps we should consider returning to a system where state governments operate revenue systems designed to pay requisitions to the federal government to fund the constitutional core, basically courts, national defense, and some international trade infrastructure and border controls, while leaving the provision of other government services to the wisdom of the voters of each state. Something to think about, especially as the For the People Act seeks to nationalize our elections under federal control. Robert Wright says once states face hard budget constraints, they cannot print money and hence cannot borrow as much or as cheaply as the federal government. And of course, will no longer be subsidized by other states as they are now. They will have to pay for their own foibles. Presumably, then they will look to successful states for better policy ideas. This is a marvelous piece. I'm sorry I've only touched on it. But I recommend it to your reading. Again, this is in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. One final article. This is from Ethan Yang. This also published on the American Institute for Economic Research website. The time has come for anti-lockdown amendments. As I look around us today, one of the things that I see that causes me a small amount of concern, maybe just a touch of heartburn, if you will, is that we're, we're teetering right on the edge of a decision. On the one hand, I see people who are very much fed up with and ready to lift all the various pandemic mandates, all of the oppressive, you know, things that must be done this way. You're not essential. Lock this down. Wear that. Stand here. Do that. Don't go there. There are a lot of people who are just ready to say enough. We're done. It's time to bring it back to normal. The numbers of people being infected, the number of people being hospitalized, the number of people dying does not justify the heavy-handed approach that has been used to this point, which, by the way, did not slow the spread of the disease one whit. The disease still ran. This this uh, COVID uh, virus has run its course just exactly as other viruses before it have done. And it looks like a lot of people are finally feeling fed up with it, or at least they're expressing that. On the other hand, here's the other direction we could go. You're starting to see a great deal of people in authority talking about how, well, there's a fourth wave coming and I've got this impending sense of doom. We've got to lock it down even harder than before. And to me, that is uh, maybe not so uh, not so blatant admission that. This really is about control and less about uh, protecting the public from a deadly disease, which, you know, 99 point something percent of the people who contract it will still recover from it. How do you get that genie back into the bottle? Ethan Yang suggests that uh, what we need to be looking at is anti um, anti lockdown amendments that would restrict those in authority from exercising draconian powers, even if they invoke emergency. Because they're kind of using this as a catch-all. It's an emergency, of course. We're going to have to exceed our reasonable powers. I don't know which way we're going to go. I don't think anybody does at this point. But I sense that one way or another, we are going to uh, to fall to one of those two, oper- one of those two options. I'd like to see it go on the side of freedom, but without some very explicit language locking government down and preventing it from doing mischief. I don't know if that's going to happen. You should really check out Ethan Yang's article. I think you'll find it well worth your while. Once again, it's in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.